this morning's going to be a, a test of endurance for you and for me. You listening to me. At times, it may be nothing but a whisper. So you'll have to pay close attention today. Um, I don't know. The Lord's got a sense of humor introducing us to a sign language ministry of a day <laughs> that I can't talk. Please don't take my, the tone of my voice or lack of it as a, uh, a lack of excitement about these verses. Uh, this morning is exciting. It's a blessing every year to be able to slow down around the Christmas season, the new year time to reflect on on all that God is, on all that God has done for his people. Uh, thinking about John chapter 1, the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, the light piercing the darkness, as we talked about last week from Isaiah. Uh, talk about the Prince of Peace entering a world of hostility. And so it's it's hard to imagine, but it's true uh, the purpose of the birth of Jesus is clear. He was born, as 1 Timothy 1.15 says, to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so I hope that you and your, your family, I hope that you and your friends were able to think uh, anew and deeply on these things over the Christmas holiday season and be reminded of that truth, of God's incredible love for you. That he would give his only son to be born, to live a life of perfect obedience, and then to take the consequences of your sin on himself to the cross. I think if we believe this truth, and many of us have by God's grace, but if we believe this truth, our futures and our lives are changed forever. And this is especially important when we consider that the calendar rolls over tomorrow. So considering all that God has done and what we've reflected on at Christmas, we think about a new year. And I, I, I'm, I'll be 42 in a couple of weeks. And I think that the older that we get, the less impressed we are with a new year. Right? Maybe we get to a point where we're, we're impressed again because we're pushing it maybe a little bit. But we kind of, we kind of don't get as quite as excited anymore. And I think sometimes for us adults, at least, it's hard to see past maybe some of the financial obligations of what's coming in 2024. Maybe those relationships that began to be strained in the last year uh, haven't changed a whole lot. And so we're anticipating further struggles in those things. Um, it could just be. We're not looking forward to probably Tuesday going back to the same job, the monotony of that work day in and day out, week in and week out. And so we know we ought to be excited about the beginning of a new year, but it's, it's just kind of tough to be excited. It's overshadowed by some of those other issues. But I think there's something in these first eight verses in Acts chapter eight that really uh, should cause us to be excited about the beginning of a new year that should help put this year into a good perspective for us, especially if we're just not quite looking forward to it. So Acts chapter seven is all focused on, on Stephen, on his sermon, on his situation, on his death, in fact. And it would 
be easy and we'd be right to be impressed with his conduct, with his behavior and his boldness. But we can't just leave it at that. We can't just leave it there because there's a principle wrapped up in here that walks into chapter 8 that we need to keep in front of us as we walk into 2024. What we'll read about in chapter 8 and, and then following all through the rest of Acts doesn't happen unless we get the situation with Stephen in chapter 7. You understand? Chapter 8 and everything that follows cannot happen without chapter 7 and Stephen. And so you remember his story from several weeks back. He's, he's, he's preaching. And he's preaching about new life in Christ, about the authority of the righteous one that the Sanhedrin and a lot of the Jews around had a hand in killing. He says, you put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. And the religious leaders don't want to hear it. In fact, at the end of chapter 7, right before they stone Stephen to death, they stop up their ears because they don't want to hear what he has to say. They, they don't want to hear him because they can't handle the truth. And they would rather be guilty of murder than submit to Jesus. Look at verse 58 of Acts 7. It says that the stoning of Stephen... At the stoning of Stephen, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. You guys probably know who the Saul is that's being referred to here. He'll show back up in another couple of chapters in Acts 9. But think about, think about what's going on in the early church right now. As Stephen is taking his last breaths, he doesn't plead for his life. He doesn't protest and talk about how unfair this is, though it was unfair. What does he do? He prays. He prayed. He prayed, first off, that Jesus would welcome him home. He sees uh, kind of the clouds split apart. He sees Jesus, his Savior, standing at the right hand of God. So he prays for Jesus to welcome him home, but he also prays for forgiveness For those who are stoning him. Literally for the ones murdering him. And it brings us to the first point that I want to make this morning. Only someone who truly knows forgiveness can offer it like this. Because Stephen personally knew God's grace through Jesus Christ, he could give it away. Now, think about what Stephen prayed for. And this is kind of something that only God can do. And he does it. But think about what Stephen prayed for. He prayed that those present that day would experience forgiveness through Jesus. Right? Who was listening that day? As we see from verse 58. Saul. And here's the thing that only God can do. Saul, the one who witnessed and approved of Stephen's stoning, is the one who would be an answer to Stephen's prayer. Saul would soon be the undeserving recipient of forgiveness. In just a few days' time, uh, he would have an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he would become one of the most powerful proponents of the gospel after being one of the most powerful opponents of it. In fact, the Lord speaking to Ananias 
in chapter 9, verse 15, talks about Saul this way. He says that Saul is going to be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So this, I think, is what we need to keep in our vision as the calendar rolls over tomorrow. And not, it's not some, some brand new revelation that I'm coming to you with. It's not some deep theological truth that I've covered. It's just the simple truth that we need to be continually reminded of and mindful of. And it's this. God rules over all. And yes, as Jason uh, mentioned to the kids and prayed, God uses some unexpected means to accomplish his will. He uses unexpected places, unexpected, sometimes even hard circumstances to accomplish his perfect will, but he will do it. Peter reminds us of this in 2 Peter 3.9. He says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He keeps his promises. And so we don't always have the ability to explain or reconcile everything that happens to us, everything that happens in this world. But scripture assures us that in no uncertain terms that God is in control and he is sovereign over us. We see it in Acts. Stephen laid down his life, literally laid down his life for the name of Christ, believing that God would continue to bear that message forward despite his own life ending. He trusted that God was bringing about um, something incredible that could not and would not be thwarted by the enemy or by evil men. Just like Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, just like Daniel in the lion's den, and just like Jesus. They all believed that what God was doing, no man could stop. If we fail to remember that, if we fail to remember this truth, it's simple, but that God rules over all. The new year can bring confusion. It can bring darkness. It can be frustrating. It might feel like what the early church was experiencing in these first four verses. Look at those with me together. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So Saul may not have been one who picked up a stone to drop on the head of Stephen but he was complicit and he knew it later on in Acts chapter 22. He says this, he says, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. When the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. He knew later on, he knows what he had done with Stephen was wrong. This must have been a very confusing time in the early church. I expect it to be pretty difficult for the believers there. Think about it. They're burying their friend. One who stood for truth. They're mourning over him. But those who were pers persecuting them did not stop to let them grieve. 
What does it say? It says in verse 3, while they were grieving, Saul was ravaging the church. He was doing this sort of thing. He was going into people's homes. House after house, it says. He dragged them off and he put them in prison. And we see later in Acts 22, he says that he had them beaten. All while they're grieving their their friend. But notice the sovereignty of God in in verse 1. It says, and there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Believe it or not, that's the sovereignty of God at work. Where were the followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 told that they needed to take the gospel? To be witnesses of him. If you flip back there, you'll see. We reference this often. It's one of the major themes in the book of Acts. Jesus says, you're going to be given power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, but also in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As Jason pointed out, up until this point, it's not gone that far. It stayed in that smaller circle of Jerusalem, sort of inside those walls, if you will. But the redemption of God's people everywhere was set in motion by the stoning of Stephen, by his sacrifice. And even though great persecution arose, which was led by Saul, it could not overcome the plan and the purpose of God. I mentioned John chapter 1. It's one of my favorite uh, books of the Bible. He tells us there, he says in verse 5, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It cannot overcome it. What the Sanhedrin and what Saul and what the devil meant for evil, but the stoning of Stephen, God was using for good in bringing the gospel message to those outside the walls of Jerusalem. And we see that played out in verses 5 through 8. Read those with me. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So yes, persecution made many in the church scatter. But it didn't stop their message didn't stop what they had to say. Verse 4 says, those who, who went out, who were scattered, what did they do? Did they just find new homes and new jobs and keep quiet to protect themselves and their family? They just saw what could happen with Stephen. But that's not what they did. What did they do? It says that they went about preaching the word. The location of these early Christians may have changed, but their message doesn't change. Tony Merida in the Christ-centered commentary points out something interesting. He says, in the Old Testament, when God's people were scattered, it was a sign of God's judgment on them. And so they were divided, and this was not a good sign. But here, now in Acts, with Jesus, everything has changed. And so the scattering of God's people here wasn't a judgment on God's people anymore. It was a judgment against those who opposed the gospel. Because God was scattering little lights all throughout the darkness to reveal truth, to bring God's righteousness and judgment to them. 
the message that the persecutors of Stephen and the early Christians were trying to contain and to squelch and to stop was catching like wildfire. It wasn't stopping. And notice something else. It wasn't just the super Christians that were making it happen. It wasn't the apostles. It says that the apostles stayed. It was everyone else. It was a lot of other normal, everyday people who loved Jesus, who were going out and teaching the word. It wasn't the apostles who first preached the gospel in Samaria. It was a normal guy named Philip. And we've heard of Philip before. We know that he was one of the seven deacons who were chosen to serve the church. It says in verse 5 that he went down to the city of Samaria and he preached or proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, just for a moment, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of a, a Christian in the early church. A.D. 30 or so, that's right around this time. You're a Jew, you're a Christian, you likely saw and heard Jesus' teachings when he was alive. You saw him put to death on the cross. Maybe you even cried with the crowd to crucify him. But then you saw him risen again. You saw him walking around. You saw him eating and living and preaching and teaching about the kingdom. You heard about his ascension. You heard some of the, the Jews that were called Christians. They were speaking in tongues at, at Pentecost. They were speaking in different languages. And then you hear Peter Give this sermon where he tells you that you had a hand in Jesus' death, but that God raised him. And you can be saved if you repent and believe. And so, by God's grace, you do. You have been given salvation. And you're wrapped into this amazing family called the church. Right? And remember what some of the church, things that the church were doing? They were, they had all things in common. If, if you had a need, your brother would, would maybe even sell property to meet that need. You were sharing food, you were breaking bread, you were meeting together, going to people's homes, and you were hearing the word preached, you were praying, you were living life in community. But then some of your leaders start getting arrested, right? Some of them start getting beaten. Now one of them has been killed. Maybe some of your own family is now being put in prison, and you decided, we got to get out of here, it's better to leave the city. And as you're packing up to go, your friend reminds you of Jesus' words in chapter 1, verse 8, about being his witness to those places that you're planning to go to. And it's there, I think, that many of these early Christians had to make a choice. The rubber is hitting the road. Now, not literally, because they didn't have rubber tires, but the, the rubber was hitting the road for them. They had to stop in that moment and make a choice. Is Jesus worth it? Faith now means something real to them. Because up until that point, it was relatively easy. I don't know how long of a span of time it was. It could have been just a few weeks, could have been a few days, could have been a few months. But now we've got uh, persecution is starting to be more widespread. And it's, it, you have to ask that question. Does Jesus mean something real to me? Is, is he worth it? I think we need to ask the same kind of question if we haven't already at some point. I'm not suggesting that someone's going to come and drag you from your home and throw you in prison for believing in Jesus. At least not yet. That's not happening widespread. But I think there's a time in all of our lives where we're faced with the same kind of question that these early Christians did. Is Jesus worth it? Because I could keep quiet about my faith and I could save myself some embarrassment. 
right? Whether it's on social media or whether it's in my workplace or whether it's, it's with my family. I could just not say anything and I'm not stirring the pot and I'm not angering anybody if I just be quiet. I could choose not to speak about Jesus so that people don't look at me differently. But we have to ask that question. Is Jesus worth it? Because uh, here's another question. Have you considered that the promotions that you receive, the demotions that you might receive, the setbacks, the challenges, the difficulties, and all these twists and turns of life that we all experience, have you considered that God is designing these sorts of things as opportunities for you to preach the gospel, to live out the gospel to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers? To your neighbors. So whether you're, you're in a high point in your life or whether you feel like you're in a low point in your life, just take a moment today to consider that simple truth that we need to keep in front of us going into the new year. It's just that God rules over all. God is sovereign over you. Could God be using this pain and difficulty to drive you closer to him? To drive maybe you closer to others who need to know him? Could God use his victory to reassure me of his plans and to motivate me to share his goodness with others? Brothers and sisters, he is redeeming the world through his son by the power of the spirit at work through ordinary people like you and me. The Christians that went out from Jerusalem as a result of this kind of persecution were likely not experienced preachers either. The apostles who'd walked with Jesus for three years were staying behind. And so you've got normal people going out and sharing the message of Jesus. They certainly didn't have uh, public speaking experience. But what did they have? They had something far better. The Spirit of God. They had God's Spirit within them. And so their conversations... We're likely like what we're going to see with that Ethiopian man later. One-on-one, neighbor-to-neighbor. They're meeting people in the marketplace. They're talking with people that they're building brick walls with. They're telling them about Jesus in normal everyday life because that's who they are, a normal everyday person. And because that's who the gospel is for, just people. The people that you go to work with. The people that don't know him in your families. That's who the gospel is for. So I'd encourage you, as you think about a new year, as you, as you think about that monotonous job that maybe you have to go back to in a couple of days, consider this. If you know Jesus, don't write off normal everyday days and normal everyday people. Because God uses you in those normal everyday moments to share and show new life in Christ. Don't overlook it. Saul, the Sanhedrin, they thought that threats, imprisonment, or death would surely stop these preachers of Jesus, these Christ followers. But persecution couldn't stop the message. So relocation surely couldn't either. Because God is sovereign and he always keeps his promises. And remember Jesus told them, Before he left and ascended to heaven, he promised them that when they go and they speak of him, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and that they would receive power. That's exactly what we see happen in verse 6 and 7. Look back at the text with me. You've got this normal guy, Philip, 
and he's going around and he's, he's preaching the word. He's proclaiming Christ to them and incredible things are happening. Spirits, unclean spirits, demons are being cast out of people. People that had never walked before, lame folks are getting up and walking. And so I think Luke, as the author of Acts here, is using Philip as an example of what we've been talking about. Of a person who's living their life on mission for Jesus Christ. Again, Philip was just like Stephen, one of those seven Disciples or deacons rather chosen by the church to serve and God used him to restore unity, to provide for physical needs of people in the church. But he also uses Philip as an example of a genuine, normal, everyday Christian here. And God uses this ordinary guy to take the gospel to Samaria and to do incredible things there. Now Samaria, if you might remember, was not a region or a people group that the Jews cared for. In fact, that's probably a light way of putting it. Uh, the Samaritans were kind of a mixed people of partly Jewish and partly Gentile origin. And this is why probably many who were in Jerusalem, who were some of the more purest Jews, really looked down their noses at Samaritans. Some even considered that they were completely outside of the community covenant of Israel. And they didn't think that God had any use for them. They certainly didn't. The reality was that the Jews didn't like Samaritans, but Gentiles, other Gentiles didn't really like Samaritans either. They were not really looked very highly upon. There was deep prejudice against them. There was hatred towards them. You, you probably remember how often this is illustrated in scripture in your notes or a couple of those instances in John four, Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman at the well and it explains uh, living water to her. Luke 17, Jesus heals a leper who's a Samaritan when he's on his way to Jerusalem. And then probably the most famous example in Luke chapter 10, Jesus makes a one of these terrible Samaritan people, the hero of a story where Jews just walked on by. A Samaritan had compassion. And Jesus lifts up that Samaritan and says, this guy's the real neighbor. He's the one you should look to. So, so Philip, he bucks the, the tradition of uh, Jerusalem Jews of hating Samaritan and, and instead follows the pattern of the Savior in taking the gospel to them. And his message is affirmed by the same kind of incredible things that we've already seen in the book of Acts and that we see in the ministry of Jesus. We see evil spirits being cast out. We see lame people being healed. Verse 6 says, The crowds with one accord paid attention to what Philip was saying when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now remember... We've mentioned this before. The signs and the wonders that we see here and throughout the book of Acts serve the purpose of pointing to the Savior. Right? We talk about road signs. The sign is not the destination. The sign points to the destination. So the healings and the, the, the demons being cast out, that's not the end goal here. The end goal is for people to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. The signs in these healings point to Jesus as the true Savior. 
And so they accompany Philip with the gospel message to reaffirm what he's saying is true. Jesus does have the power to save you spiritually because he also has the power to save you physically. And that's evidence there in what we see. Now, do you remember Jonah? If you remember Jonah, raise your hand. Not personally, but for the story from the Bible. Jonah was a guy who hated a group of people, right? The people of Nineveh were his sworn enemies. God says, go to Nineveh. And he hated them so much that he went the opposite direction. So God had to get his attention with a storm. And he sends them to Nineveh. But even there, he's not a very good listener. And he's certainly not a great preacher. Because all he says for like 40 days, for several days, is, hey, in 40 days, God's bringing judgment on this people. That was his message. And, and humorously, like at the first sound of this message, it says that the people of Nineveh repent. Of course, that makes Jonah angry and upset. But Jonah is this, this um, reluctant preacher who comes with a very unusual message saying in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. But his message has power because God gave it to him. And Philip is the same kind of way as far as the power, not the message. <laughs> Philip comes preaching a sermon that he wanted to preach. He willingly takes the message of the gospel to the Samaritans, to those who his people generally and traditionally should have hated. He takes it willingly. And look at the result of it all. And I think this is the biggest point for these first eight verses. It's in verse eight. It says it's so so, calls us back to the rest of what has happened so far in the chapter. The healings, the, the miracles, the demons, the message of the gospel. It says, so, because of all those things, there was much joy in that city. There's much joy there. Christ Jesus being brought near to the people. And the message of the gospel was the cause of great joy to this people. A people who probably didn't look at Jews too well either. Because of all the animosity there. And yet they hear this reconciling message of the gospel. And it brings joy. Now there's, there's no way around as we read these first verses in chapter 8. That something, there was something exceptional about the way God did signs and miracles through the apostles and through guys like Philip and Stephen. And even others mentioned in the book of Acts as we'll see. Though we may not see the same kind of miraculous things taking place in the world today, day in and day out, I don't think we should stop praying for it. If by the power of the Spirit, Jesus intervenes with signs and wonders like we see going on here and read about in the book of Acts, we better be ready to turn people's attention to Jesus Christ like these early preachers did. We better be ready and willing to say, there's a reason for this happening. It's so that you might be reconciled to God. If God still does these things in our day and age is a debate that probably will go on until he returns. But we can be certain of this. If we're accumulating attention to ourselves instead of pointing people to Jesus, it's just all a noisy gong and it's just a clanging cymbal. Because we don't really love those people. If we see incredible things happen and we uh, gather that attention to ourselves as the conduit of maybe some of those things, God's not going to use us in those ways anymore. 
Because the point of them was not to draw attention to, to Stephen and to Philip and to the apostles. The point was for them to say, no, I'm going to reflect that back to the Savior. So in Samaria, it says that the crowds, they paid attention to what Philip had to say when they heard what he did and they saw the signs that he did. And it resulted in much joy in the city. And the question that I want us to think through as we, as we finish this morning is this. Isn't that the point of the gospel? Isn't that the result of the gospel of joy in our lives? Now, you've heard me say it before several times that the message of the gospel oftentimes hurts before it heals. It stings before it soothes. But rightly understood, the message of the gospel ultimately brings joy because it reconciles those who believe it to God. The gospel says that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He says he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. That's what the gospel says. Yeah, the reality is it says there that you owe a debt that you can't pay. But it also says there that by his sacrifice, Jesus set your debt aside. He nailed it to the cross. He took it. The gospel says that while we were still weak, or the gospel says that now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so it's true that you are far away from God without Jesus on your own. Because of your sin, there's a separation there. But that verse also says that by Christ's sacrifice, you can be brought near both to God and to his children, to his people. The gospel says that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in our place. So yes, the gospel stings because it tells us that we are weak in our own strength and we are ungodly and unrighteous without him. But the gospel also soothes and tells us that God shows his love for us in that he gave his son to die in our place. He gave Christ for you. Christ gave himself for you. This is the gospel message that Steve or that Philip took to the Samaritan people. This is the gospel message that caused them great joy in the city in hearing it. Brothers and sisters, it's the same message that, that brings us great joy in hearing it, isn't it? This is the gospel message that we get to live out as Christians and proclaim each and every day, even at the monotonous job, even at the gathering of of strained relationships and families. This is the gospel message that God has given for us then to go and to share. But if you don't know personally, I want you to understand this is true for you too. This is the same gospel message that has the power to save you when you believe it. Praise God that the gospel was preached outside of Jerusalem because we would have never heard otherwise. Praise God for Stephen that gave himself so that all of this could go into motion. This was God's plan. This was God's doing. But Stephen submitted himself to it. Philip submitted himself to it. And we'll see as we go, these other early believers, they gave of what they had, sometimes everything, to see the gospel message go. 
Are we willing to do the same? I hope that the gospel brings us joy in believing it. I hope that it brings us joy in recounting it to ourselves and reminding one another of it. I hope that the gospel brings us joy when we get to share it with others around us. That we might see that joy increase in our city, in our families, in our nation. That's what we want as God's children. That's what God wants for this world is to see this message proclaimed because it does bring joy. And so maybe you don't feel all that joyful in the moment. If you've trusted Christ, remember the joy of the gospel. That no matter what happens in this life, you have been reconciled by the sacrifice and blood of Christ. And when you stand before him, nothing will get in the way of your relationship with the Father. If you're not joyful today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, understand that's what Romans 1.16 says. The gospel is the power unto salvation for everyone who believes it. And Paul there, he says, to the Jew first, but then to the Gentile. Praise God that it comes to us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, oh, thinking of, of moving into a new year tomorrow morning is a perfect time to be encouraged and reminded of the joy of the gospel. So you bring that. We know that you bring joy. The things of this earth can bring us a little bit of happiness for a little bit of time, but it, it fades, it goes away. But the joy that you bring can never be squelched like the message of the gospel itself. It can never be overcome. So we thank you for the joy that we have in Jesus, and in the message of his redeeming work on our behalf. And so I pray, Lord, if any are listening who don't know that personally, that today would be the day that they would understand by Philip's example that you have come, you have come to save, to seek the lost. So do your work in us, Lord. Remind us this morning of the joy of our salvation. In your name we pray and ask it. Amen.